The End of Life Radio Project presents Palliative Care, the search for comfort and healing in the face of death. Most people nearing the end of life don't want to spend their final days in a place like this. A noisy, sterile-looking hospital room hooked up to ventilators, tethered to IVs and feeding tubes. They'd rather die at home, surrounded by family and friends. They want to live out their final days in comfort, free of pain. But most people at the end of life will not experience a gentle landing. Only 25% die at home. The rest end up in hospitals, nursing homes, and other institutions. More people than ever before spend their final hours, often incoherent, kept alive by machines and medical interventions. Over 60% experience unwanted pain, suffering, and discomfort. Here in the United States, the most technologically advanced country in the world, why is this happening? There is a way to address pain and suffering. It's called palliative care. Healing and comfort care for people nearing death or facing a serious life-threatening illness. I'm Joanne Marr, and in this next hour, we'll hear what palliative care is and why, after all these years, it's still not universally available for everyone nearing the end of life. My brain's constantly swelling. I have constant brain pain. Luca Singer is at the end of his life. He's living out his final days at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, one of the city's first residential hospices that started during the AIDS crisis. The hospice movement began in the late 60s. Hospice was the first to provide palliative services for the terminally ill. Space at Zen Hospice is limited, and it took several months for Luca to be admitted. By then, Luca was in excruciating pain. Not only did he have brain cancer, he got into a serious accident. About three weeks ago, got hit by a car, walking across an alley, broke both my legs and my hip and my arm and my shoulder. So when I got here, extra, extra pain. Luca is now resting comfortably in a bright, sun-filled room that overlooks a quiet tree-lined street. Luca calls this a healing sanctuary. His pain is mostly under control, and his depression is not as acute thanks to the palliative care team at Zen Hospice. The medical staff treats his physical pain with medication, and hospice volunteers, counselors, and social workers help lift his spirits. I don't, I don't want to die just medicated and suffering. I want to die alert and aware. Let's change the policies to accommodate me. George Keller is executive director of Zen Hospice. And we're trying to focus on helping people and make it possible for people to live more fully until they die. So what we make an attempt to do is to be 
present with a person. May I touch you? Would you like me to hold your hand? Would you like your feet raised? Are you warm? Or just be quiet. And that unfolds into a communication. The kitchen is at the heart of Zen Hospice. Warm, freshly baked cookies and pastries for staff and visitors, and home-cooked meals specially prepared for each resident. Priscilla, the chef, is busy making a milkshake for one of the residents. Luca's meal is next, a delicious grilled cheese sandwich with tomatoes and avocados. I feel like royalty, and I feel spoiled from the moment I wake to the moment I go to sleep. I couldn't be in a better place. A few months after we spoke, Luca passed away peacefully in his sleep. The goal of palliative care is to alleviate pain and suffering. Not just physical pain, but also existential suffering, depression, anxieties, tremors, and other symptoms. Experts say over 90% of pain symptoms can be controlled. But the comfort care Luca received at Zen Hospice is not available to many dying Americans. And that's the big question. Why isn't palliative care part of a routine standard of care for people nearing the end of life, like cough medicine is for the common cold? The answer to that question is complicated. It has to do with our deep collective fear of death and the rise of modern medicine. A medical dream comes true under the drive of industrialist Henry Kaiser, who holds the plans of the ultra-modern hospital designed by Dr. Sidney Garfield. The modern the ICU, Foundation. the intensive care the unit, took off in the mid-20th century. The use of machines saved lives and helped treat injuries and diseases that would have been fatal a century ago. With the advance in technology, the number of ICU beds increased at an astounding rate. Prolonging life at all costs became modern medicine's primary mission, and death receded into the shadows. Even now, we don't talk about death. Our experiences about death, our feelings about death, our attitudes about death, what we think death is, our beliefs about death. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen is the founder of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program and one of the earliest pioneers in the mind-body health field. The task of medicine is seen as defying death and that death is seen as a, as a personal failure by many, many physicians. Many physicians are actually phobic in their reactions to death. I think that the entire culture needs to look at the way it defines life, not just the medical system. I think the medical system is following the attitudes of the culture, reflecting them back, often intensifying them so that what, what we see in the medical culture seems much more exaggerated than what we see in the culture at large, but it's the same belief system. When Remen was a young doctor in the early 70s, she became interested in the field of death and dying. She wanted to find out more. To her great surprise, she found very little was written on the subject of death. And I went to the library, it was a major library, one of the outstanding medical libraries in the country, and said to the librarian, can you tell me where are the books on death? And she said, you mean oncology? 
and cancer research? I said, no, death. And we looked at each other. It was like we were ships passing in the night. And she said, um, oh, thanatology. And I said, yes. She said, fine. And she gives me a stack number. And then I went through an experience was almost an allegory. I went through floors and floors of books going downstairs. And then I went through aisles and aisles of books and journals and articles. And finally, I found the section on thanatology, and it was about a quarter of a shelf. And as I recall, there were several copies of the Journal of Thanatology and a copy of the Bible. And that was the entire collection with respect to death. Keeping patients alive as long as possible became the routine standard of care. More is better, more tests, more invasive treatments, even for people nearing death. The assumption was all patients wanted this. But some doctors began questioning these assumptions. One of those doctors was Alfred Connors, a pulmonary and critical care physician. Dr. Jessica Nudig-Zitter was a student of Dr. Connors, and he told her about one of his dying patients in 1980 who didn't want his life prolonged. The patient could not breathe on his own and had a tube inserted into his windpipe attached to a ventilator. And after a couple of weeks, the guy started waking up, and he wanted to get off the breathing machine. He's like, take me off. He didn't want it. And Dr. Connors was shocked. He'd never seen this before. What do you mean, take you off? You're going to die. And the guy was insistent. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live this way. After much discussion with the patient's family, the tube was finally removed. Sixteen hours later, he died peacefully. The patient's demand led Connors to wonder how many other dying patients wanted this. In the mid-90s, Connors joined the support research trial. This groundbreaking study was aimed at improving care for seriously ill hospitalized patients. Of the 10,000 dying patients surveyed, nearly half reported experiencing unwanted pain and suffering. He never expected the dismal results of the support trial. They were so bad, so bad. People were dying so badly. People were suffering so badly before they died. The communication between doctors and families was so dismal. And the incredible overuse of technology at the end of life was so profound that he said you could have heard a pin drop when they delivered the results to the Society for Critical Care Medicine. The results from the support trial were a wake-up call for the medical system. But change did not happen immediately. In the 1990s, most doctors and nurses had no training in pain management and end-of-life care. The words palliative care were not part of the general medical lexicon. Today, 20 years later, the United States has made substantial progress in providing palliative services. Hospice referrals have increased dramatically since the early 80s. Most large hospitals now have palliative care centers. Since 2007, palliative medicine was certified as a specialty for the first time. We are definitely better than we were 20 years ago, but are we 
where we should be, absolutely not. Dr. Vijay Pariakoyal is Director of Palliative Care Education and Training at Stanford University's School of Medicine. The Institute of Medicine did a 20-year follow-up on looking at the state of uh, end-of-life care in the U.S. and found some major gaps that need to be addressed before we can actually claim that we are very good at providing care for patients at the end of life. In its report, Dying in America, the Institute of Medicine issued a series of findings and recommendations on how to improve care at the end of life. One big problem cited in the report was the critical shortage of palliative care specialists. On average, there's only one specialist for every 1,200 people in need of palliative care. Another problem cited in the report is lack of training and education. Many dying patients and people with serious, life-threatening illness are often not told about palliative care or hospice. Even if they are informed of their end-of-life options, it's often too late to do them much good. Most of today's physicians and nurses have little or no basic training in palliative care and communication. How to speak to dying patients with sensitivity and kindness. Dr. Lavera Crawley remembers being appalled by the physician treating her dying father. A phone message on his voicemail left by his physician that went something like this. The tone, beep. Okay, Dr. Crawley, I just want to let you know your results came back and you have cancer. So I want you to call my office, make an appointment with my secretary within the next couple of weeks, and let's see what we're going to do with that. Beep. My father called me and played that message for me as he's crying. This was horrible. This is how he found out he had cancer from his doctor. Years later, after her father died, Crawley encountered the same doctor taking part in a study she was conducting at Stanford on how physicians delivered bad news to their patients. And he told the story of the first time that he lost a patient after surgery. He was new in his career. He was still in training as a surgical resident. And he remembered breaking down crying experiencing the emotions of the loss and whatever sense of failure he had. And he expressed what is a completely normal human emotion and cried. He said that his attending physician and all of his peers came down so hard on him and told him that if that's the way he was going to respond to his work, he should quit now. Much is expected of the medical profession. Traditionally, most patients have looked up to their doctors and trusted them to have all the answers. Part of the expectation is that doctors are in complete control of themselves. They exude an air of complete confidence. They don't cry or faint, and they never reveal their emotions. So he said that he had to figure out a way that he was going to be able to deal with the emotions that he was going to have and not ever express them. He learned that he was, quote, just the facts, ma'am. In other words, pulling from the old Dragnet television show that he, if he just stayed factual with the patients and just walled off his feelings, that was the way he was gonna do it. Discussing something as sad and gruesome as death can be difficult for most doctors. 
Public health specialist Dr. Richard Jackson says physicians wall off their feelings by lapsing into incomprehensible medical jargon, resorting to robot-like analysis, and keeping discussions with patients businesslike. But it doesn't work when you're sitting there talking to the panicked parents whose child has just been hit by a car. And you can't walk in and talk about cranial sutures and that sort of thing at that point. You've got to really talk about what they're dealing with. And that's the essence of medicine. Being a patient means you're suffering. And really good docs be open to the suffering of that person and suffer too because at some point we're helpless. We just have to suffer with the patient. And we can't let that suffering consume us, but we have to be present in their suffering. When communication is poor, patients and families can have a hard time understanding their options, asking the right questions, and making informed choices. And it's difficult for doctors to ascertain the patient's preferences, especially if they avoid asking. Rather than focusing on bad news, doctors will instead offer more tests and treatments. Within the medical community, it's, it's actually called the therapeutic illusion. This concept that you can do something and it will make some kind of a difference. Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter. Doing something will give you some sort of control over the situation. And there's no situation where people feel more out of control than when someone's suffering or dying. So doing something is sort of a natural human inclination to want to do something. Dr. Richard Jackson had his own encounters with therapeutic illusion and poor communication. His mother was dying of pneumonia in a New Jersey hospital, and no one on the medical staff spoke with him or her family about end-of-life options. Instead, the doctors kept giving her tests and further treatments to keep her alive as long as possible. And we had a parade of pulmonary doctors, heart doctors, ophthalmologists, blood docs, liver docs, you name it, one after another. And I kept saying, wait a minute, um, you're doing all these tests and, and nothing's happening. Jackson's mother had specified she did not want to be resuscitated or intubated if she was nearing death. But her wishes were not included in her medical chart, and her doctors refused to speak to him. So I get this runaround. So I finally grabbed the head nurse, and I walked her down the hall, and I took her into my mother, and I said, Mom, do you want a code blue? Absolutely not. Do you want to be intubated? Absolutely not. Her DNR and DNI preferences were again recorded in her medical chart. Disappeared again when she moved to a different room. So in the last day or two, I came to her room and I saw like two people on top of her. They couldn't get blood out of her arms any longer. And they're intubating, they're, they're sticking uh, catheters into her neck to get black blood out of her. And what's going on? So uh, I had to raise hell. I was seen as a troublemaker and they kept saying, wow, that VIP, you know, is fussing about his mother. Like, and it was perfectly obvious to me that this was the end of her life. It was perfectly obvious to her. The insertion of the catheter caused a huge hematoma, a big bruise that extended from her head down to her chest. But thanks to Jackson's intervention, his mother's suffering finally came to an end when she was transferred to a hospice. There, she was given warm, supportive care during her final hours. Twenty-five percent of all elderly people die in the ICU, 
and this number appears to be on the rise. Patients brought to the ICU are usually in critical distress, and they need medical help immediately. Get respiratory in here, Carter. Spare a second line. D51M, 2 milligrams Narcan. TV dramas like ER portray the quick, rapid-fire response of the medical teams as they try to save lives. Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter works in the ICU at Highland Hospital in Oakland. She questions whether automatic resuscitation is always the best response for the patient nearing death when there's little chance of recovery. And part of the problem is that we don't ask. We just assume. We assume that we should be defaulting to those technological escalations without asking. In addition to being an ICU doctor, Zitter is also a palliative care specialist. In her dual roles, Zitter tries to provide good end-of-life care to her dying patients. But sometimes, these efforts come into conflict with her impulse to save lives as an ICU doctor. Zitter's concerns about end-of-life care in the ICU led her to chronicle some of her experiences in blog posts for the New York Times. In this article, entitled Resisting the Urge to Do More, Zitter describes a homeless woman near death who was taken to the ICU. The situation was dismal. This 51-year-old woman had all of the dreaded and irreversible complications that come with chronic alcoholism. Crucial organs were failing. Her liver was almost completely shut down. When Zitter arrived at the ICU, the medical staff was doing everything to keep the woman alive, inserting large catheters in her veins, starting drips, and doing CT scans. As if this scenario weren't awful enough, her brain was profoundly and irreversibly damaged, and there was no chance of reversing it. She would never again wake up. So it was clear that this woman was near death, and nothing you could do would have saved her, but the first impulse of an ICU doctor is to keep her alive. Absolutely, and my residents were trained well. Um, this woman really had lived now hours past, obviously, where she would have lived had she not received this very intensive care. We are always trained to think, oh, but what if, oh, and I'm thinking of all the things that maybe I could have done this and maybe I could have done that. It's just a natural part of the way we think as ICU doctors. But in the end, Zitter's palliative care instincts prevailed. She stopped all further treatments and tests and gave the woman pain medication to ease her suffering. She died within the next few hours. Honestly, even to this day, when I read that passage, it's hard for me. Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter. It's hard. It goes against all of our culture. You know, if you start backing off and saying, okay, come on, team, let's sit down here for a second. Let's talk about this. How is this really going to help? People kind of are uncomfortable with that. It, you know, we've got this team contract. We are here to save this life. That's what the team contract is in an ICU. For dying patients, these heroic measures can often do more harm than good. When nothing further can be done, many of them are transferred from the ICU to long-term acute care facilities. In her memoir, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, Zitter writes that these patients are tethered to ventilators, attached to IVs, feeding tubes, and catheters. They live out their final days alone and unresponsive, some perhaps in pain and discomfort, unable to speak or interact with their families. 
Perhaps these patients would not have chosen life-prolonging measures had they been asked. In my experience, I've seen that patients really want to talk about what they want for themselves when it comes to the last chapter of their lives. Dr. Vijay Periakoyal, Director of Palliative Care at Stanford School of Medicine. We doctors really have no idea what really matters to them. And so then what happens is the default takes over and then all kinds of procedures and treatments are given to them. Because all this happens in a very short and very tense time, there is no time to press pause and say, what matters to you? What do you want? Coming up, how can dying patients get better access to palliative care? It starts with having an honest conversation about death and dying. This is Palliative Care, the search for comfort and healing in the face of death. So tell me, do you think much about the end of life, about death and dying? No. They're a little too deep for us. We don't think about it, definitely not. Honestly, we don't think about it. We just live. It's wonderful. Life is wonderful. I kind of have a uh, optimistic and more of a happy-go-lucky point of view. I don't know. I just. I just don't think about it. <laughs> what about you? No, because there's more important things to do and think about. Just ignore it and pretend it's not happening. So I guess I don't think, if I think about it, it's only in negative terms. I think about life itself, and I, I really don't incorporate death in there as much as I probably should because it will happen. Maybe something to think about, though. Yeah. <laughs> Youth culture is everywhere. Billboards, display ads, magazines, movies, social media. There's a complete absence of older wrinkled faces. No one wants to be reminded of old age, and no one wants to die. So it's not surprising that most Americans don't want to think or talk about death. Only a third of all Americans discuss or make plans for the end of life. ABC's Jeffrey Kaufman is once again at the hospice. As Terry Schiavo began her seventh day detached from her feeding tube, her brother and sister came to the like hospice. Like most Americans, Terry Schiavo made no plans for the end of her life. Then one day, the unexpected happened. Schiavo had a sudden heart attack and went into a coma in 1990. Shiva was kept alive by a feeding tube. During that time, her husband tried to withdraw the feeding tube, but he was adamantly opposed by Shivo's parents, Congress, and President George W. Bush. 
Their highly publicized legal battle went all the way to the Supreme Court. After 15 years, the feeding tube was finally removed, and Terry Schiavo was allowed to die. This protracted battle might have been avoided if Shivo had sat down with her family for an end-of-life conversation. It's called advanced care planning. I I, want to ask you, you know, what makes your life meaningful and what kinds of decisions should I make on your behalf if you weren't able to speak for yourself? Well, I think one of the things that you want to do is that I'm I'm a realist and if it comes to a point where I have some kind of a terminal condition, uh, whether it's a... Yeah, what does terminal mean? Dr. Jennifer Brokaw is an emergency care physician and patient advocate. In 2012, she conducted an advanced care planning session on stage with her father, former NBC anchor Tom Brokaw, at a TEDx talk at Stanford University. What does quality of life mean to you? What, what are the specific tasks that... I, I want to be conscious and uh, given who I am, I want to be able to talk and communicate with the people that I care about. Okay. As a patient and, advocate, and Jennifer Brokaw has also, guided many I, I people through my, advanced uh, care planning. These in-depth conversations give patients the opportunity to express their concerns and goals. They can set limits on the types of care and treatment they want. At the urging of his daughter, Tom Brokaw went through the process. He was an anchor man of a, one of the three big networks for you know a long time, and that comes with a certain amount of ego, and he'll say most anchor men think they'll live forever. But he's being a little tongue-in-cheek. I I know my dad's joked about reading the obituaries and just looking at how old they were when they died. And, you know, a lot of people are his age or younger now, and he, you know, that doesn't go unnoticed by him. Two years after their onstage conversation, the unexpected happened. Tom Brokaw was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of bone cancer that attacks the spine. It was shock. It was disbelief. Um, There was... There was a, a little why me. But after the initial shock wore off, Brokaw worked on a treatment plan with his doctors. After much thought, he decided not to have surgery because of the risk and the long recovery period. Because he had gone through end-of-life discussions with his daughter, Brokaw was able to weigh his options clearly and carefully. And he was able to think about this, this cancer in a less scary and more organized way and to ask the right questions. Early on in his diagnosis, the question came up about whether he should undergo stem cell transplant, which is known to really beat back the disease very effectively. He was able to say to them, look, to me at 75, contemplating going through this ordeal and really being in the hospital mostly for nine months, sounds like nine months out of my limited time, however long that is, that I wouldn't want to spend. And they heard that loud and clear. Brokaw opted to manage the disease with medication. For him, spending quality time with his family was far more important than risking the pain and discomfort of surgery. (laughs) 
Most doctors and nurses have no training in advanced care planning, a subject that was not covered when they were students. That's beginning to change. To encourage advanced care planning, Medicare has just started reimbursing physicians for providing this service. After the conversation, the next step is completing an advanced directive. These are written instructions spelling out future preferences for medical treatment. According to the Dying in America report, it's estimated that 70% of older Americans are too ill to make decisions about their treatment as they near the end of life. An easily accessible written document is key to carrying out their wishes. So on this page then, Karen, is where you would fill out your name, your date of birth, your address, and your telephone number. Janet Olmsted is a facilitator with Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She's helping Karen fill out her advanced directive form. The next part is really talking about those, that health care agent that you chose. The advanced directive is a legal document that has two parts. One part designates someone to be Karen's medical representative, someone who can make decisions for Karen if she's unable to. Karen is choosing her sister, Patty. The other part is known as a living will. This specifies the kind of medical care Karen wants in the event of a life-threatening illness. Karen can choose to prolong her life at all costs, or to stop treatment and choose comfort care. It's, it's pretty clear to me that I don't want extensive care to prolong a life that is pretty much not functional and lacking cognitive awareness, etc. I'm pretty clear on that. Once Karen completes her advanced directive, the document becomes part of her medical record. Gunderson Health System has a policy that honors patient preferences for end-of-life care. But outside of La Crosse, patient preferences are frequently not carried out. Advanced directives can easily be misplaced or lost. During their TEDx conversation at Stanford, Tom Brokaw asked his daughter Jennifer about the living will he remembers signing. I'm going to take this opportunity to put him uh, on the spot here because I have no idea about your living will. <laughs> And unfortunately, I don't know a lot about my living will. Well, in fact, I'm not even sure where it is at this point. That's the, and that's when living wills and advanced directives are not available, the patient's wishes cannot be carried out unless the hospital has a copy. But even if medical facilities have copies of the advanced directive, there's no guarantee that the patient's wishes will necessarily be honored. San Francisco Bay Area resident Sandy Miranda found that out when she placed her aging mother, Frances Lucille, in a southern Texas nursing home. Soon after the move, Frances suffered a stroke and she could no longer care for herself. Before the stroke, Frances had completed an advanced directive and she designated Sandy as her medical agent. If something happened that would make her completely incapacitated, she didn't want intervention and she didn't want to be kept alive artificially. Yeah, she had DNR, so do not resuscitate. So that's an important thing, you know, you need to know that. Unfortunately, the nursing home did not honor that. 
Frances got worse over time, and she later caught pneumonia. The nursing home kept her alive, in spite of her stated wishes. They were not supposed to do this, but they gave her antibiotics and kept her in this kind of horrible state for yet another year and a half. And I really found that sad because it caused her to stay in a really sad condition there much longer than she would have. Hospitals are a world of their own. Medicine is a world of its own. Katie Butler is a Bay Area journalist who wrote a best-selling memoir, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. It has its own rules. It's like a foreign subculture. And once you enter into that system, it can be very, very difficult to get your wishes put into practice. Butler had her own difficult experiences trying to get her father's advanced directive enforced. In her memoir, she recalls going up against a wall of resistance when the physician refused her request to withdraw treatment for her dying father. So there are all these systemic barriers that create this tendency to push, 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 treat, 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 until somebody has the guts to really stand up and say no. Butler's 79-year-old father suffered a major stroke at his home in Connecticut, which caused brain damage and dementia. He had a weak heart and probably would have died of natural causes much sooner. But his pacemaker kept him alive for the next six years. In her memoir, Butler writes that the extra years of life caused him great misery. My father's sight dimmed so much that he could no longer read the New York Times. His balance became so unsteady that my mother could no longer let him walk on his own. He became bowel and bladder incontinent. His brain became so damaged that he could not form a plan to get to the bathroom on time when he needed to, but not damaged enough to keep him from being ashamed and remorseful. His life went on, thanks perhaps to his pacemaker, and he could do nothing about it but endure. The tipping point had come. Death would have been a blessing, and living was a curse. As her father's medical representative, Butler requested that the pacemaker be turned off. And the doctor, the cardiologist, not only refused to cooperate, he really treated us as though we were some kind of moral monster. And so there you are. Technically, we are in charge. Technically, we're the decision maker. Technically, according to the law, you have the right to refuse any form of medical treatment, and you have the right to request the withdrawal of any form of medical treatment. But you got an advanced device like a pacemaker, you don't know how to turn it off. You don't know where to go to get someone to help you turn it off if your cardiologist is saying no. While completing advanced directives and having end-of-life conversations are good first steps, there are no guarantees that patient preferences will be honored. For that to happen, our medical system needs to change radically. Can this be done? Stay with us.
You are listening to Palliative Care, the search for comfort and healing in the face of death. One place Katie Butler might have sought help was in La Crosse, a small city in Wisconsin on the Mississippi River. La Crosse is known for its steamboats, Wisconsin cheese, and its excellent end-of-life care. La Crosse is home to Gunderson Health System, ranked in the top 1% of all hospitals nationwide. Uh, we have to get going here. We all have to go milk. <laughs> <laughs> These longtime lacrosse residents meet every week at their local coffee house. They're retired, and they've all completed their advanced directives. Michael Sigmund is one of the regular attendees. He and his friends say that planning for the end of life is standard procedure in lacrosse. Before you go actually see the doctor, usually it's the nurse who asks the question. You know, when you first walk in the door or for a quick laughter, you know, you know, how are you doing? Do you have any pains today? Do you have an advanced directive? So I'm getting the sense in hearing you talk that uh, a lot of you have thought about uh, the end of life and you seem comfortable talking about it. Oh, yeah. Yes, and we've all filled out our forms. It, we, ha- we have no fears. That's why we're willing to talk about it, because it's a darn good idea. And it's painless. I mean, it's a very straightforward, simple process. When you're our age, you talk about it. <laughs> An astounding 96% of all lacrosse residents who died last year had completed advanced directives. That figure far exceeds the number of people who complete advanced directives in the rest of the country. How did lacrosse achieve these high numbers? It was part of a 40-year campaign led by Dr. Bud Hamas, a bioethicist with Gunderson. Finding out what the patient wants is the starting point. But Hamas says no one was asking this question. And I kept asking myself, why isn't anyone talking with the patient about their preferences, about their goals and values, so that we might be better prepared for this event? And so I just asked the question, couldn't we change this? Couldn't we make this better for everyone? In the mid-80s, Hamas tried educating Gunderson's younger doctors on having end-of-life conversations, but his efforts went nowhere at first. Although the doctors agreed it was a good idea, they strictly followed a hospital outline that did not include end-of-life discussions. So the light bulb went off, and I realized that if I was going to have an impact, I actually had to change that outline. The new outline drafted by Hamas required doctors to summarize their plans for future end-of-life care that includes patient goals and preferences. This was the first step that led to other profound changes at Gunderson. Medical staff learned to converse with dying patients. All patients were routinely informed about advanced directives, and their documents automatically became part of Gunderson's electronic medical records. Facilitators were hired and trained to help patients with their end-of-life planning. A lot of the work here at Gunderson and Success has been about this combination of actually redesigning the system and then training people to work in it. And the system that we want is a system in which knowing and honoring each and every patient's values and preferences is the expected and routine of care. Over the years, 
Gunderson has achieved better outcomes for dying patients and their families. Patients spend fewer days in the hospital compared to other medical centers. Medicare costs at Gunderson are significantly lower because many patients decline expensive, life-prolonging treatments and procedures. Thanks to aggressive outreach efforts, the Gunderson model has spread to other hospitals in La Crosse and is being replicated nationally and internationally. Our next report here is one of those things a lot of American families should see because it's about a moment in life all families face. Gunderson and La Crosse have drawn national media attention. In this news report from 2012, NBC reporter Harry Smith called La Crosse the best place to die in America. Here, an astounding 96% of the patients have a game plan for life and death. It's called an advanced directive. It's just the norm for them. Dr. Ruma Kumar is a palliative care specialist at Kaiser Permanente of Northern California. There's a video that stands out in my mind of a father and a daughter, and the father was not interested in doing the planning, and the daughter and all the neighbors, everyone got on his case about, why aren't you doing this? This is something you must do. So it's become that level of intervention there. It's very exciting. In 2012, Kaiser Permanente adopted the Gunderson model and set up its own end-of-life program called Life Care Planning. Dr. Ruma Kumar. We were able to use some of their training materials and training workshops, and so we absolutely, you know, use those models as we set up our program. You know, they've been at it for much longer than the majority of us, so they have a bit of a head start and they've gotten these numbers, um, but we're hoping to do the same thing over the next eight to ten years to really get greater than 90 percent of our patients with some sort of planning done. One big reason for La Crosse's success is the broad community outreach efforts led by Gunderson and the city's other major hospitals. But in the Bay Area, replicating the Gunderson model is still a long way off. Bringing together all the hospitals and the hundreds of senior facilities and social service agencies would be extremely difficult. In addition, the Bay Area has a diverse population with multiple languages and cultures. Without language-proficient facilitators, outreach to all sectors of the Bay Area would be nearly impossible. Uh, so who has an advanced health care directive in place right now? That's great. Educational outreach largely depends on volunteer organizations like the East Bay Conversation Project, a community-wide coalition working to help people with their end-of-life planning. Allison Rodman is addressing a group of seniors on how to complete an advanced directive. Actually, you don't need to have it notarized. You can just need, it just needs to be witnessed by two people. Another self-help initiative was started online by Dr. V.J. Periacoil. It's called the Stanford Letter Project. It allows patients to communicate their end-of-life wishes to family and loved ones. It's free and available in eight different languages. Periacoil says one reason most people stay away from end-of-life planning is because good planning can be difficult to understand and navigate. We do have advanced directives, but advanced directives is full of legal jargon. So when people read the jargon, the medical legal jargon actually is quite intimidating. So if it's like that for me as a physician, I can only imagine what it is for a patient. So when patients don't understand something, they don't want to sign it. As part of the project, Peria Coil created simple, easy-to-understand letter templates. 
One template is for family and friends. Patients can compose heartfelt messages expressing love, apologies, and gratitude. Dear friends and family, if you're reading this, it means that I've passed on suddenly and unexpectedly. So this is my letter to my family and friends, and it's to Dave and to Tom. Let me start by saying that I'm very grateful to you and your loving care and concern. Another template is the What Matters Most letter. It's written at a fifth grade level, and the patient describes what he hopes to achieve in the future. What matters most to me is spending quality time with my family. I do not want to be a burden on my family, and I do not want any life support. What matters most to me is uh, hanging out with my niece and nephew, uh, being able to go on hikes, enjoy, enjoy the weather, being outside. What matters to me most? I want to be able to take care of myself and for me, that means toilet and eat to communicate. The Bay Area is making steady progress in educating not only the public, but the next generation of physicians. Its medical schools at Stanford and UC San Francisco have two of the nation's leading palliative care centers. Aspects of palliative care are now integrated into the core curricula and electives include training classes in communication and breaking yeah, bad news. So um, let's just go around. What is an advanced directive? Palliative care specialist Brooke Calton teaches this course at UC San Francisco. Medical students are learning how to carry on conversations using role play. My name is Maxim Pochebit. I'm a uh, student doctor. I'll be talking with you. Max Pochebit is a medical student in Dr. Carlton's uh, class. He's doing a role play with an actor playing the part of Sandra, a woman whose mother is very ill. Okay. Well, it's nice to meet you, Sandra. Thank you. Is there. So, if time were shorter than we were hoping, do you know or have a sense of what would be most important for her? What do you mean if time were shorter? Uh, Conducting end-of-life conversations can be difficult and awkward at first. At Stanford School of Medicine, Dr. V.J. Periacoil uses video role plays with her medical students. Replaying the videos gives students the chance to watch their performance and learn from their mistakes. Periacoil says it takes skill and patience to find the right language. You don't know whether you can control your emotions, so it's incredibly important to role play this. The key is that they need to be able to voice these words out loud in a safe environment where you're not talking to a real patient, and so the stakes are lower. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to be with a real patient who's in distress and try your skills and get it wrong. You really don't want that. That's why we try to triage all this beforehand so you're ready for prime time when you get to the patient. I'm gonna sit on your bed, is that okay? Dr. Wendy Anderson is a palliative care specialist and teacher at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. This bed makes noise when you sit on it. John is one of her patients, a young man with large masses below his eye and in his abdomen. The two masses are causing John severe pain and loss of appetite. Second-year resident Margaret Lynch is accompanying Anderson. This is part of an elective course that allows students like Lynch to shadow physicians on their palliative care rounds. What else has been on your mind? Just, you know, kind of going through 
emotional roller coaster, you know. Through palliative care, Anderson is trying to manage and control John's pain symptoms. And so what we should do today is, um, is do another small step up. So go from um, 60 milligrams to add 15 milligrams onto each dose. So that would be 75 twice a day. By accompanying Anderson on a rotation, Lynch is learning about pain management and how to communicate with dying and seriously ill patients. Not just on this rotation, but throughout my training, some of these difficult conversations about um, making difficult medical decisions or care at the end of life that I've been involved with with patients and their families, they're the things that I remember the most from my intern year, the things I look back on and feel like I really was able to make a difference for a patient or for their family. So I think it's, it's really rewarding. As a palliative care specialist, Dr. Jessica Nudig-Zitter has made a big difference for many of her dying patients brought into the ICU. For many years, Zitter felt she was alone in the ICU, swimming against the tide. I'm very optimistic. I mean, just watching the trajectory from 1980 to now and to seeing the excitement even in my hospital that people have about enhancing communication and figuring out better ways to talk about advanced care planning and talk about CPR with patients. And I'm feeling that there is a sea change just beginning to happen with both within the medical community and within the lay culture. And I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. And I think we're really at a point where we have to grab this and start making some exciting changes. But I feel very optimistic. We'll close this program with one more story that had a happy ending of sorts. One of Zitter's patients was Tess, a woman with stage four lung cancer. Tess had been treated by other doctors before being assigned to Zitter. Tess's daughter, Rebecca Mitchell, says they were hoping for a miracle cure. We always, and she always felt too, like there was a chance that this is going to work, that this will fix this. So all this sort of struggle would be worth it to gain those extra five years or three years that maybe we could get. And then every doctor that we saw sort of during that period of time, they seemed positive, encouraging, like, okay, we've seen this before. We're going to try this. We're going to do this. This has worked before in the past. But Tessa's cancer had metastasized and was spreading everywhere. Her body was failing and she was in and out of the ICU. Despite evidence to the contrary, her doctors remained optimistic, and Tess held out hope that she could survive longer. During her last visit to the hospital, Zitter was her ICU doctor. Rebecca was present when Zitter gave her mother an honest assessment. She was losing all this fluid. She wasn't responding to the medicine. We couldn't get into chemotherapy. And I think that's what Dr. Zitter brought to her that day. Like, okay, look. Here's what's happened to you, and here's the path that we're going down. And even at the end of that path, it doesn't look too good. It doesn't look great. Honestly, I think that they both knew that. I think we all knew that. You know, I think even the doctors in the ICU knew it. It, it just took somebody to say it's okay to, to acknowledge that. It's okay to say, you know, there's an alternative to this. Tess made the decision to stop further treatments. She went home 
and with the help of Zitter and daughter Rebecca, received palliative care through hospice until she passed away a month later. Honestly, I think she was just happy to be out of there and coming home and and to know that she would be home and not have to find the energy to get dressed the next day to go do some new procedure or to to get treated for something else. I think um, that was a relief for her. And all the fear was taken away because we knew that we had resources. People were right there ready for us. So that was great. If you're going to do it, I mean, if you're going to go and you know you're going to go, why wouldn't you want to go like that? Why would you want to go in a hospital bed or in a hospital room alone or or fighting or hooked up? Or Why would you want to do that, you know, if, if the eventual outcome is going to be that you're going to pass? You would want some sort of control over that, I think. And that's what she did. She just sort of took control and said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to do the things that I want. And um, when it's time to go, I'm just going to fall asleep and and not wake up. Universal access to palliative care is still a long way off. Good communication between doctor and patient is the starting point for improving care at the end of life. But more is needed beyond that. A medical system that will actively support and honor patient preferences. That will require a paradigm shift, a change in the medical culture, and the willingness to adopt a patient-centered model of care a collaborative approach that addresses the needs of the whole person. If that model takes root and expands beyond care for the terminally ill, it could one day transform the entire healthcare system and deliver medical services that are more affordable and compassionate. Palliative Care, the search for comfort and healing in the face of death was produced and narrated by Joanne Marr. This program was produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. It was written and produced with the support of a journalism fellowship from New America Media, the Gerontological Society of America, and AARP. You can listen to this program again by visiting our website, endofliferadio.org. That's endofliferadio.org. Thank you.